Thank you for joining us and welcome to the Focus Right Pro podcast. I'm Dan Hugley, and on this episode, I'm joined by Julian Kolbeck and his partner at the Art and Science of Sound Recording, the great Alan Parsons. Let's get right into it. All right. Hello, everybody, and welcome to the show. Today, we have a very special guest who I'm very honored to have the opportunity to speak with. He's a Grammy-winning producer, engineer, vocalist, and multi-instrumentalist who plays keyboards, bass, guitar, and the flute. Alan had a hand in writing rock and roll history by working with amazing bands like Ambrosia, Wings, The Hollies, Pilot, The Beatles, Pink Floyd, and of course his solo venture, The Alan Parsons Project, who have just released a complete box set on vinyl only. We'll talk about that in a little bit. And of course, there are many other bands that he's worked with. His great course, Art and Science of Sound Recording, is going to be celebrating 13 years of educating students on audio production. Mr. Parsons, it is beyond an honor to welcome you to the show. Thank you for joining us. Oh, hi, Dan. Uh, please, Alan, not Mr. Parsons. I, uh, my standard joke when people call me Mr. Parsons is only policemen <laughs> call me Mr. Parsons. <laughs> well, hopefully that's not happening to you too much uh, these days. No, I hope not. <laughs> um, obviously, like most people who listen to music, I am a big fan of your work. And in fact, I spent my last birthday, which was just a few weeks ago, uh, listening to a very nice vinyl copy of Dark Side of the Moon with my wife. That's how I chose to spend that. And I thank you for being a part of my birthday, which I'm sure you're a part of a lot of people's birthdays at this point. <laughs> my birthday was uh, the 20th, which as we record this, it was yesterday. But um, uh I'm still wading through all the birthday wishes, but, uh, but thank you for yours. <laughs> yeah, yeah, of course. Very happy birthday to you. And yeah, I appreciate you joining us just the day after your birthday. Oh, no. I'd like to start off our conversation by helping our listeners uh, define the differences between an engineer and a producer. You started off your career as an audio engineer, which is what I set off to do at the beginning of my career when I went to school. You got to start off as a tape operator at the iconic Abbey Road Studios, and you eventually became a staff engineer there and later in your career ran the facility. Back when you were a staff engineer, a little band called Pink Floyd happened to be in the studio and you recorded The Dark Side of the Moon. I even note that you um, recruited Claire Torrey, who sang that amazing vocal melody on The Great Gig in the Sky, which to me is a really important part of that album and that track in particular. Pink Floyd was the only one credited as producers on that album, but you were recruiting talent for their project, which kind of blurs the line between engineer and producer in my eyes. So with all of that said, I know I used a lot of words. Where do you see the differences between the role of the producer and the role of the engineer on a project? I just made the phone call. I didn't, <laughs> I didn't effectively really produce Claire's performance, although, as you said, it was a, a remarkable performance on her part. Traditionally, engineers are are purely, you know, uh, dealing with microphones, sound balance, sound quality, and in terms of performance and uh, choice of material, choice of songs, instrumental lineup, and so on. That's the producer's job. But um, occasionally, you know, occasionally it does cross over. I mean, uh, as you pointed out, I I made the phone call to Claire. I also um, offered my uh, previous recordings of Clocks for the time track. And, uh, you know, that's, that's a big sort of iconic part of the record as well. It sure is. Yeah. It's one of those little, uh, you get lulled to sleep and then it wakes you up for sure. Um, <laughs> but as a staff engineer, and this might get into the weeds a little bit and maybe a little bit too personal, but 
you were a staff engineer that we were paid a fee every week by Abbey Roads. What further compensation can a person expect if an album, you know, nearly 50 years later sees the type of success that you've seen as you were you were there to write rock and roll history? Well, I'm still waiting for the call from Pink Floyd to uh, give me a bonus. <laughs> and uh, no, it, it, I was very much uh, a staff engineer. They did uh, pay me to go on the on tour with them. I, I did a, a few American tours with them as the live sound engineer. So I got paid for that. But uh, no, they um, didn't see it fit to pay me anything other than my staff salary from Abbey Road, from the payroll as well. With that in mind, with the compensation aspect in mind, does that guide you in choosing whether or not to work on a certain project? You know, since you're paid that standard fee, no matter who you're working with, do you then choose to work on the projects? Uh, or at that time, did you then choose to work on the projects that you were more passionate about or projects that you believed in a little bit more? Um, well, as a staff engineer, I just did what I was told. You know, I, you are recording Pink Floyd tomorrow starting at uh, 10 a.m. You know, that, that's how it was. I didn't have the luxury in my early years as an engineer to choose what I what I did and what I turned down. They just wrote my name on the program and said, you know, that's what you're doing. Um, in later years, yes, I perhaps got a little, especially as a producer, I, I got much more, much more focused on what I wanted to do as opposed to uh, what was chucked my way. But um, I, did, I haven't turned a lot of stuff down over the years. That's a cue for 500 phone calls, I know. Yeah. <laughs> you're just getting over those birthday texts, and and, and now you're going to get more phone calls. So I'm, I'm working on an EP right now. Maybe I'll have to ring you up in a couple of weeks. Oh, yeah. But, you know, thinking of music as a whole, as a consumer of music, I'm of the age of loving vinyl myself. But albums have changed over the years. Like, they used to tell a story from the needle drop on side A to lifting it up at the end of side D. Now... Musicians are recording singles or just social media content. In your opinion, is the album, as you and I know it, growing up, a thing of the past? I think it is. I mean, we are, you know, music is delivered in three or four minute uh, chunks these days. And that's lamentable, I think. With the resurgence of vinyl, I, I hope it might come back. I sense that, you know, the popularity of vinyl has led people back to their living rooms, their hi-fi system and, you know, a, a decent quality output, and they sit down and actually listen. I'm hoping that that's, <laughs> that's the case. But, um, you know, too many people are, are listening to music through, on, on their phones, on their little earbuds, or, or what, what's even worse, on the speaker on their phones. <laughs> that's the, the ultimate sin, I think, to listen to music on, on, a, on a smartphone speaker. It's a terrible situation. It does away with all the dynamics and all of that thought and time that you, a person like yourself puts into making a record sound so big and so full. Yeah. Yeah, I, I kind of like bass, you know, <laughs> but you can't hear it on a phone. <laughs> right. Exactly. Yes, exactly. No, I'm a person who I just moved into a new place. And one of the things that I had to have was a dedicated vinyl space where I set up my hi-fi with my, you know, my speakers, my amp, my turntable, and I needed that space and it needed to be a particular way. And I commented to my wife last time we were listening to records that I absolutely love the space that we have. And 
I love the experience of a record of you listen to four or five tracks and then you have to get up and go ahead and flip it. And, and, and it was just kind of the timing of where the producer or where the person making the choices for the album would put the tracks that they want. You know, I'm, I'm sure the label had a bit of that uh, say in that as well is what's that last track before people get up and flip the record or perhaps change to another record after listening to just one side. And yeah, now with the short attention spans that people have, you know, it's just singles and, and content for three minutes. Yeah, I I think another another sad thing is that we've uh, you know ever since CD came along that we we lost the half the half time break you know yeah I really like used to like that you know just uh, you didn't have to necessarily you know take the pickup off side A and uh, immediately turn it over and play side B you might you might go and put the kettle on and have a cup of tea or something <laughs> exactly but no, I think uh, the fact that there were two halves just like there is in any sports game mm-hmm. I think that was a good thing and uh, I wish that would come back. I agree with you there. I'm going to transition over to what I really would like to talk a lot about today, and that's uh, the art and science of sound recording, which you began in 2010 in DVD format. Um, And for a little context for you and for the audience, that's about the same time uh, I was wrapping up going to audio school myself. I got a degree in audio engineering from Musicians Institute, went on to work directly for Steve Vai on his record, The Story of Light, and then I took a marketing role at Manly Labs. What first got you interested in this education space? Because I'm really glad that you got into that at the time. Well, Julian and I, who is who is with us listening in, I'm sure he'll have something to say about this as well. We had previously made a, a much shorter video series, of, or rather Julian made it. It was on, on VHS tapes, and uh, I did a, a short interview for that. And a, f- a few years on, we, we just decided it was a need that was... Uh, it was desperate in the industry for you know for people to understand what sound recording is all about, and uh, that that's what we set out to do. We we thought it would be uh, maybe a, a couple of hours of video, but it ended up being nine hours, and we covered every every possible aspect of, of recording from initial setup, acoustics, all that stuff, to the actual recording itself and all the. All things that go with it, microphone technique, EQ, compression, limiting, all that stuff. Have you got anything to add, Julian? Oh, yes, lots. Hi. <laughs> well, I think, I mean, I, I can say some things that Alan is, is way too modest to tell, but I think so often when it comes to instruction, especially, I think, with, with things like music, what's really important and really interesting is someone who has been successful at it, whatever it is, telling their story of what they do, as opposed to, you know, nothing to take away from a teacher who may have very good insight into music or art or whatever. But, you know, if you've actually made records that are successful, then I think I want to hear from you. And that was my kind of my thought with Alan. Here's someone who's been stratospherically successful. Let's hear the story from that perspective you know not just a theoretical this is what you do this is how you do it blah 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 you know but someone who'd had success and uh that was the kind of interest point for me to kind of get out from alan the real stories peek behind the curtain you know what does happen even if it's not what people think mm-hmm. does happen but to to be honest and just a real kind of bird's eye view of the whole process i absolutely love that and And it does. It gives you that credibility for the course. You know, I could start a course right now and people could listen to it and go, yeah, well, what's this guy know? But Alan, with your history, it makes a lot of sense to have you in this project. 
just because obviously you've been a success and people should listen to these tips and tricks and, and not even tips and tricks, but these methods, these tried and true methods that go into making a great sounding record. I think there has, um, well, perhaps no longer because of ASSR, there was this mystery of how records were made. You know, people, people actually thought that uh, bands went into a studio and walked out with a, with a disc, with a <laughs> piece of music on it. Really, you know, we, we tried to lift the veil, you know, tried to, interestingly, a recording session has to be experienced start to finish to really understand it. There've been countless documentaries, you know, trying to capture what a recording session is like, but in the space of three or four minutes. And it, it just can't be done that way. No. There's too much repetition, too much uh, time spent talking about what's just happened, winding the tape back, or that used to be a very, <laughs> winding the tape forwards and backwards used to be a very time consuming thing. That's gone now, of course, which is uh, I'm thankful for. <laughs> but uh, yeah, it, it, it was really, SSR was really just designed to, uh, to, take some of the mystery away about what goes on in the studio. And if it took nine hours to do that, then I, th <laughs> I think we succeeded. <laughs> yeah. The, the amount of work is inconceivable from the outside to go into making just even one track, you know, from the choices of microphones to the choices of snare drums, to the choices of, of where you're going to place each microphone. There's a lot of decisions and a lot of thought that goes into every single aspect. And, you know, it's that concept of you don't know what you don't know until you kind of, like you said, pull the curtain back. There's a lot that people don't know about music production and audio production. And that's amazing that you've opened up that curtain for everybody to see what you've been doing. Yeah, I mean, it's... Um... I've always said that you know, watching music being recorded is a bit like watching someone knit a sweater. You know, it's a lot of very small things. And eventually you've got this thing you can put on and, hey, that looks cool. But I mean, the individual processes and steps, you know, can be really small and really hard to see sometimes. I mean, I, I've lost count of the amount of times I've seen Alan, even to this day, literally on his hands and knees in a studio, you know, moving a mic an inch to the left. Yeah. Well, I mean, people don't do that now. And very sadly, they don't do that now. But Alan does yeah. because it's important. You know, it's not sounding right. So instead of just fishing for the next plug-in or even you know, tinkering around with settings, you know, you may just have the mic slightly off where you could have it, the sweet spot. And hey, presto, there's the answer. But you kind of need to know where it looks. And Alan, you know, if he's big enough to get on his hands and knees to do it, then anybody should, you know, but they don't. Yeah, they don't. I'm very grateful to the instructors that I had when I was in school that taught me that, that mic technique and, and simply moving the mic, like you were mentioning, in different directions, that can make a difference in the tone and the overall quality of the recording. And again, it's not something that you're going to fix in post. It's something that's going to sound right from the beginning, something a mix engineer doesn't have to worry about down the road. Um, so with, I, I, th uh, I think it's important to, important to mention that um, getting a good recording is not just mic placement or mic choices it's the uh quality of this of the sound source if it's a bad drum kit you know yeah. you're never going to get it to sound good right if it's a inexperienced singer who sings flat all the time that's not going to make a great record either yeah. you know you just have to um, just have to make certain judgments and assessments on what you have i mean the golden rule is junk in equals junk out you know? yeah that's a great rule to live by the original course, I believe that was DVDs, correct? Yeah. 
it was I, I want to say it was nine or ten DVDs, which is just an astronomical amount of content. It was actually only three. Well, it was actually three DVDs, but it was in three languages. So it was kind of sliced horizontally and vertically. It's in Spanish and German, or the original DVD. But it can be downloaded or streamed. So, I mean, it's still there. And and, uh, the courses that we put together subsequently have been based on that material and added to that material as well. But, uh, you know, this is kind of fundamental material eq 10k is 10k is 10k is 10k it's still 10k doesn't matter what's analyzing it or delivering it and so the course i think it's fair to say is kind of skills based Mm -hmm. and uh, and procedure based as opposed to any one particular piece of equipment or any one version of any one particular piece of equipment and so you know it tries to teach you what to do one story again, I'll, I'll tell stories about Alan because he won't tell them for himself. But, uh, you know, often when we've gone to studios or schools, you know, people say, oh, you know, what, what, is that, what equipment does Alan need? You know, he must need this and that. And he always says, well, what do you got? I'll make it sound as good as it can sound, mm-hmm. kind of no matter what it is you've got. And that's so good, I think, for people coming into the industry that they don't have to you know, feel that they can't make a good record unless they have absolutely the most expensive equipment. You know, you can have expensive equipment and be a complete klutz and make crappy recordings, and you can be a very skilled engineer or producer and have modest equipment and make great recordings. So, you know. Yeah, I I think uh, an important point to make is that since the DVDs kind of got superseded, I mean, it's so much more accessible now. I mean, now that it's file-based, you know, you can look up, any particular moment in time and find it on the course. Yeah, it's true what what Junin just said. I'm uh, not likely to specify, um, you know, what kind of mics they have, what kind of console they have, what kind of EQ they have, all that stuff. (laughs) I I always remember that in the years where record company assistants would be booking studios, you know, just checking the availability of, uh, of studios for one of their artists, you know. The first question, How are you, have you got an SSL? You know, <laughs> it was uh, crazy, you know, just, uh, you know. Yeah. The, the, the best studios were, were great, not because of their gear, but because of their atmosphere and their, and their stuff. And I'm sure you were looking for the Focusrite console anyway, so SSL just goes out the window. <laughs> Oh, sorry. SSL I'm, might be a dirty no, word on this. On this, sorry. absolutely sorry. not. No, SSL. That's where I. That's where I learned uh, signal flow is on an SSL console, and yeah, I'm joking, of course. Um, sorry, Phil. Sorry, <laughs> Phil doesn't mind at all. So you've been doing this for nearly 13 years. A couple questions. I can't believe it's already 10 years. I know. Over the years, you have to have some success stories. People coming to you who now have careers because of you. Do you have any of those favorite success stories that you can share with us? Um, <laughs> I can't. The only person that springs to mind immediately is is my my uh, in-house engineer Noah. <laughs> he he also went to Musicians Institute, incidentally, and uh, he's been with with me uh, oh th- three or four years now. And uh, you know he's destined for greatness. I think he knows my my studio and my equipment whole lot better than i do <laughs> so i'm thankful for that uh, we we just had dolby atmos installed and uh, he knows how to he knows everything about it i i can barely switch it on although you know i know what i'm looking for with the mixing in in the format but uh, you know the technical side of it I, I very much leave to him so i think yeah he's a bit of a success story and and, and he will go on to do greater things i'm certain 
we, we've had many, many people over the years who have, you know, got into a recording school or, or got in England, they have these things called A-levels. And, you know, a lot of people have taken the courses as maybe a 17-year-old, something like that, and mm-hmm. it's helped them get their, their music yeah. tech A-level and get into college and also get jobs. And I think one guy, we won't necessarily mention names to spare their uh, their blushes, but uh, I remember speaking once to a guy who got into college having taken this course and that helped him get in. And then he ended up working for Alan as an engineer, you know, so he actually ended up getting a job through this. And we've had many people over the years who've gone on to uh, to have quite significant careers having started off, you know, learning from these courses. Yeah. That makes me think of something from my own experience. And this could go to either one of you gentlemen. I've found that as I teach things to people, I actually learn as I'm teaching more than I even did going to school because, you know, you kind of think you know something and then you try to put it into practice for somebody else and teach them the skill that you have. But then you learn a whole new aspect of it from their perspective. Is that something uh, either of you have found either in the course itself or, Alan, as you're training engineers for your own studio? I think um, every lesson that I ever learned was as the result of asking a question. You know, why Why did you do this? You could have done that. Why did you do it this way? And, you know, watching other people do the same thing, I, I might be the one that asks the question, you know. There are hundreds of variables at every step, and uh, it's experience that teaches you what works and what doesn't work, as a general rule. I think something else that helps you become a great engineer is your ears. At, at what point did you realize that you had an ear for recording music? Well, I, my my... Initial foray into the world of audio was um, for EMI, their um, pressing plant and their tape duplication department, which was in Hayes in West London. That was my first experience of, of being told to listen as part of the job. Yeah. And uh, one of the things that uh, I learned was that, you know, it was generally accepted that, that a level difference of 2 dB was a, about as much as the average person could hear. But... Um, I found that I could hear 1dB, you know, in a very uh, controlled environment, of course, but uh, one and a half, definitely, I can hear this. Sometimes you know, it, it's difficult to hear that. that, that and that, that was it. We were in this department called Tape Records. There were 24 machines all recording from the uh, master copy. It was, it was actually a copy master. We called it a copy master. And... Uh, the quality control department would say, you know, machine number 13 is down 2dB, so-and-so. The top end is uh, not very good on machine 23 and so on and so on. So that started it all. And then, my goodness, by the time uh, I got to Abbey Road, it was, you know, every every moment was a, a test of hearing. I think we've often said, and Julian will back me up on this, um, you know, part of the job is learning how to listen, mm-hmm. not just to make right decisions, how to actually tell the difference between one thing and another. That's very important. One of the first modules in the um, the online course is finding a set of reference tracks that you can use, you know, be it going into a new studio or getting a new set of speakers or whatever, but just something that you know very well mm-hmm. and to analyse what it is that you like about them and what it is that they have. You know, are they, you know, the tone, the, the texture, the, the dynamics... You know, so we start that course with a kind of listening exercise, which we hope will kind of run through the course that you're continually burnishing your listening skills. And I think, again, Alan's, 
you know, like with anything, I mean, why is a good chef a good chef? Because he can taste or, or she can taste really well. What makes a really great producer? I think that just you can hear really well. I mean, it's really basic stuff. And are you born with that or do you learn it? You know, some people are born with those skills and some people have to work very hard to develop them. Yep. But I think they are the skills you need as an engineer or a producer at the fundamental level is an ability to hear and analyze what you're hearing mm -hmm. and do something about it. A, a story I always tell about Alan's production, again, is that for most of us mortals, you know, you hear a track and you go, eh, you know, it's not right, it's a bit this or a bit that, and you try this and you try that, and, you know, well, maybe I'll, you know, you go around the houses to make it right. Alan will hear something, I swear, and he'll just go, ah, He'll, he'll literally do the one thing that it needs instantly. Amazing. I don't think I've ever seen him sort of try something and then try something else. He can just listen to a darn piece of music and go and pinpoint what's wrong. And that's, I, I don't know, if that's a natural talent, Alan. Maybe you'll uh, reveal it or just always had it or whether that's something you really had to work on. I, I don't know. But it, to me, is is absolutely key to end up with that talent, whether you're born with this or have to develop it. I, I will decline to comment on that, but I take it as a great compliment. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's, yeah, it's true. It's funny. You know, it's we do these live masterclasses uh, from time to time, and I remember a, a room full of students. Alan was EQing the overheads on a on a kit, and, you know, he, he looked at the left and kind of brightened it up a bit and did this and, and then started looking at the, the left. And the student put his hand up and said, you know, well, you've got the setting. Why don't you just copy the left to the right? And he went, yeah, but it doesn't sound right. <laughs> Again, really fundamental things. You know, you don't, you know, you're not listening to music as a series of parameter values. Right. You know, the right might have been recorded slightly differently. And therefore, to make it balanced, you've got to listen to it and balance it. You can't just say, okay, here's the left. Now I'll copy that over to the right. I mean, maybe that will work. But that's not how Alan works, and and I venture to suggest that's not how any good engineer should work. You know, you, you use your ears, yeah. not your eyes. Thank you for saying that. Yeah, there's yeah. Just a quick comment for me. Something I enjoy is the fader aspect rather than mouse clicks for when I'm working on music, just because that that it it looks like you can go like 1.2 dB or whatever, and my mind always wants to have that around number, so it has to be 1.0, not 1.2, but that's not the right answer. The right answer is what sounds best. And I'm really glad you brought up reference tracks. I have a playlist that's about 40, 50 tracks. And Alan, I have one of yours on there. Sirius is one of my reference tracks that I always like to listen to when I'm testing out new speakers. That's a really nice one to listen to. Well, I'm pleased to hear that. Yeah. I mean, uh, reference tracks, yeah, pretty important, I think, because, uh, there are rooms that, um, particularly the bottom end can be all over the place. You, you'll, EQ or balance uh, the bottom end of a, of a track that sounds right to your ears and then you take it away and then play it somewhere else and it'll be way too little bass or, 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 or the opposite, you know. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, reference tracks are very important. Uh, so but uh, uh, having said that, a lot of it can be just experience. I, I know that if I put a pair of Coles 4038s on top of a drum kit, that's STC 4038s for you Brits out there, I, I know that uh, it's not going to sound good flat, so I, I will put in, you know, 7 or 8 dB at 10K, fairly uh, broad curve, mm -hmm. before I even bother to listen to it. 
things like that, you know, you know, you just know from experience. Right. And uh, if you look at the meters and the kick drum seems to be overloading and you can barely hear it, you know, you, you have to find a way of, uh, of dealing with that. Back to the course, um, you again mentioned it started back in 2010, all DVD at the time, three DVDs, not nine or 10, as I had mistakenly said earlier. What's changed and how, how has that evolved over time from then until now? Yeah, I mean, we've um, concentrating on material um, rather than updating old material. I mean, I think generally speaking, the, uh, the advice we've given on the course, you know, still stands uh, the test of time. Yeah. Julian will probably want to expand on this, but we are currently working on a uh, immersive audio production module for the course, and that's actually going to be sold separately. But Julian will tell you more about that. Yours. I think on the course itself, as Alan said, you know, the fundamental materials are still fundamental mm -hmm. and they still yeah. work, although we have updated and, and added, of course, as time has gone on. But I think the major thing that we've done when the video series first came out, you know, it was something you watched and then that was it. Whereas now the online course has a whole massive series of assignments and projects and downloadable music files. So you don't just watch videos, right. you watch videos and then there is an assignment to take. So you actually sure. do some recording, you actually do some EQing, you actually do some balancing. And, you know, it's not really until you do things yourself that you're probably going to learn a great deal. I mean, obviously the video is interesting, but you've actually got to get behind the wheel and do some driving, yeah. you know, to see how it, how it corners. It, it's tough to kind of do that just by looking. And some of the music files that you can download to work on, they are recordings, you know, by Alan at some great studios mm -hmm. around the world. So you then get to sit behind the wheel of an Alan Parsons session. Mm -hmm. One of them is a live recording with a whole symphony orchestra, you know, and that's an incredible experience. Yeah. But then, you know, you're learning about EQ, you're learning about processing and gating and, and all this stuff. And then you've actually got tracks that you can see what that means in the real world on your rig, you know, at home with your equipment. Sure. And that, I think, is the significant change between just the original video series, which was just pure video, sure. and the course now, which is video plus instruction and plus you doing the work yourself. Yeah. And then just briefly on the, the immersive course, we will have that out shortly. Mm -hmm. And obviously, this is it's such a changing scene, although Atmos seems to be kind of ruling the roost at the moment because mm -hmm. Dolby is who Dolby is. There are many other immersive solutions out sure. there. And so the course tries to kind of, again, demonstrate the process of immersive mixing and recording, not yeah. just mixing. And uh, rather than just say, here is the only solution. So uh, very exciting, but very tough because <laughs> it's uh, it's a really, you know, every week there's a new uh, a new angle. Yeah. Yeah. So it's actually a, almost a nightmare how many formats there are and how one <laughs> is either compatible or not compatible with the other. You sure. know, it's, it's a real uh, voyage of discovery for, sure. for us as well as, as well as the people we're preaching it to. So, yeah, we have to be very very astute with our, uh, you know, what we say about stuff because, you know, it's all so new. Everything is yeah. really very new. We've got a, a, a great guy on board called David Reyes who's, uh, who's really spearheaded the whole, uh, the whole thing. And uh, 
he's become a really a pool of knowledge that uh, <laughs> that I'm very jealous about because you know he knows a whole lot about all the different formats much more than I do. Yeah. But it's it's going to be good. It'll be out, um, I think, in the new year, sometime early new year, and uh, we're looking forward to that. See how, what the reaction is. It's I think it is a, a desperate need. There's <laughs> I mentioned earlier the air of mystery about recording. There's a huge air of mystery about uh, what surround and immersive uh, formats are all about. You know that's that's very interesting for you to, for me to hear from you because you were you were an early adopter of the format. You have a, a Grammy-winning album that was mixed in immersive, and the music that you make really lends itself well to this format spatially, in my opinion. What got you into immersive audio when you did get into it? Um, it was being asked to do a quad mix of Dark Side of the Moon in 1973. Uh, that's where it all started. Quad, um, quad really never made it. No, um, and it had limitations. Yeah. You couldn't put anything in the center of the room. You couldn't put anything between the back channels. Mm -hmm. It would cause uh, phase cancellation. But, uh, you know. <laughs> Sorry for the interruption, folks. We had a bit of a technical glitch and Alan's answer was cut off. Let's pick this back up with Alan restarting his answer. Yeah, um, the quad format. Back in 1973, there were two formats, one called QS and one called SQ. They were for, for a vinyl release. There was a, a couple of releases on 8-track, if you had the right player, 8-track cartridges, that is. Um, but the, the limitations of quad for vinyl were you couldn't put anything in the center of the room, you couldn't put anything center between the back speakers. So um, that was a limitation in itself. But, uh, you know, you listen to the uh, quad mix today. I, I think it sounds pretty good. A couple of things missing mm -hmm. because I didn't have uh, didn't have all the uh, necessary tapes. But, uh, you know, the, the, it proved to be fairly popular, the original quad mix that I did. It's available on one of the uh, box sets of Dark Side of the Moon. Didn't you do an Ambisonic, Ambisonic's album as well later on, which was kind of in between uh, quad and uh, yeah. became 5-1? Yeah, I did uh, Stereotomy in, in uh, that format, Amazonic. I wasn't that impressed with it. I thought Discrete Quad or Discrete 5.1 was was better. But uh, it is mixed uh, Amazonically, that album, Stereotomy. It's great to hear that there's going to be a, a module coming for your course on this. And I think that's the beauty of these online courses is that you can update them and add content to them rather than creating another DVD to, to send out to people. Yeah, that, that became a nightmare when we realized that uh, we could not literally update everybody's uh, DVDs uh, set. So, uh, yeah, it's great having the ability to update, you know, even the slightest thing and, uh, you know, keep everything current. With your course being taught at educational facilities, it's picked up as curriculum across across the country and even into Latin America, since you do have Spanish language courses. Do you ever go out and visit any of these campuses? And have you ever had an, a very inspirational moment while you're there, if you have been to them? Well, we've, in conjunction with the course itself, we, we've held a number of masterclasses in uh, various parts of the world. We did one at Abbey Road. We did done stuff in Germany, Argentina, to name but three. And uh, it's been uh, it's been great to uh, travel the world and spread the word, you know, on what SSR is and for people to watch for literally firsthand, watch me at work and to uh, yeah. to make comments and suggestions. I mean, the poor bands, the poor artists, uh, you know, had to put up with, uh, you know, 18 producers in the room. <laughs> so uh, pretty tough on the artists, but uh, sure. it, we warned them ahead of time that that might be the case. But it, it was fun to do. 
fun to do these masterclasses, you know, with an app there and students actually looking on in real time. Something I noticed is you recommend Soundtrap as the DAW for your courses. With all the other DAWs available, what made you choose this one to recommend? Is it because it's readily available or any other reason? One of the modules asks you to challenge the way that you work. Ah, so, you know, if you work on an analog console and, you you know, okay, now you're going to mix in the box, you, you know, and if you mix in the box, okay, now you're going to go out in the open and you're going to get a, find someone with a console and you're getting, you know, Very cool. so part of the course is just to make you do things outside your comfort zone. And so, you know, Soundtrap is a very good online door. And obviously many people have never, even now, mm-hmm. when uh, these things are becoming more uh, more kind of popular, but they still may have never deviated from Pro Tools or Logic or whatever. Sure. And they're still grounded in a version of something. And Soundtrap is, is in the cloud. You know, it's like BandLab or any of these other cloud-based recording platforms. And I suspect they will become more and more standard as the years go on. So we wanted to encourage people to kind of dip their toes into that water and see see what it's like. You know, and internet recording, you know, is another important module in the course. As it's turned out, we were well ahead of the game. Alan has been doing that very, very, you know, since the very early days when that became possible. But nowadays, and certainly post pandemic, you know, is now become de rigueur, you know, invaluable. How, how could we exist without online recording? I mean, yeah. we, it's now become uh, part of the fiction. Yeah, I managed to record Joe Bonamassa online and, uh, you know, some other, other vocals from Nashville. Mm-hmm. Totally, you know, without, I mean, quite apart from anything else, it saves an enormous amount of money on hotels and airfares. <laughs> And, and it, it's become almost like being there. I mean, it's just the fact that you're not actually physically breathing the same air, but it's right. once they're on the other side of the glass, it's the same experience. And uh, I think, uh, you know, modern recording, you know, that's part of what modern recording is, recording online, I think. Yeah, I think you're absolutely right. It's changed from we don't all have to be in the studio all at once to, you know, with audio interfaces, it makes it very possible to capture great recordings in your living room, in your bedroom, in your apartment, or your own home studio dedicated space, depending on your skill level and and what you have there available to you. One thing to mention is that, uh, unfortunately, we will never be able to do live collaboration between musicians online because yeah. latency is latency and, and that we, we can't make that go away. Yeah, We can't change the laws of physics. So, you know, it has to be one talented artist at a time. Right. We can't really realistically interact with each other. Now, I know you you cover a lot in all of your courses. Before we wrap things up here, is there anything that you'd like to share for any engineers who may be in school right now or maybe taking your course? Any piece of advice? Could be audio related, could be talent related. Any any piece of advice you'd like to share? I, I've always encouraged people not to try and do too many jobs. I mean, don't try and be the bass player, the drummer, the engineer and the producer, you know, work with other people. And I think ideally, whoever's at the computer, who's ever clicking the mouse or pushing the faders up and down should not be one of the performers. And that's why I've held to that basic rule in in my career as an engineer and producer. That's what I do. When that job is done, yes, then I'll go into the performing area and sing a vocal or play a guitar or whatever. But, uh, you know, always have uh, 
somebody else, you know, driving the system rather than trying to do everything myself. Yeah. There is a tendency for people to do too many things at once. Great piece of advice. Yeah. And it's like we were just talking about with people being able to record themselves at home. You know, just because you can doesn't mean you should. That's when you kind of miss some of the nuance of watching the faders and making sure things don't clip while you're trying to have a great vocal or guitar take or something like that. It's always great to have someone there, even if you are a home recordist yourself. That's a really great piece of advice. I think that um, nowadays there's a tendency to kind of acquire knowledge in a very piecemeal fashion. You know, people will go on YouTube and pick up a tip here and then find something there. That can be great, but if you don't have a kind of fundamental understanding of what it is, you know, be it EQ, be it how to use microphones, be it how to record a singer, be it a vocal chain, be it, you know, whatever it is, I think you end up as a very kind of itsy-bitsy piecemeal engineer or producer because you have no real kind of connective tissue. You've just got a whole bunch of disconnected ideas and I think what a course like this, whether people take our course or whether they, you know, go to junior college or go to full sale or go to, you know, anywhere, the value of doing that is a kind of continuum of knowledge yep. and a kind of a process, even if you go off, which you should anyway, and develop your own ideas, but you've got a kind of big picture understanding of, of what you're doing. And I think a lot of people feel that's not necessary. And I think they they feel that at their peril. If I could just quickly go over one funny story that happened to me the other day, I was working on a project and um, we'd recorded a very, very good singer. And as far as I was aware, it sounded pretty good. And then came back a week later with the engineer to kind of continue working on that session. And the vocal was sounding really odd. And we went, oh, what's happened to the vocal? He said, yes, yes, I know there was a problem. And uh, you know, I've been trying to fix it, but, uh, you know, it's, I, I'll fix it. Don't worry. Next time we, we come to it, I'm sure I'll figure it out. And then, okay. Came back a few days later and the vocal sounded ridiculous. I mean, it's like, what? It just sounded like a alien. And I went, what's going on with the vocal? He said, yeah, no, I'm having real problems with it. Um, I don't know what's going on, but I can't seem to find it. I said, well, let's look at it. And so he called up the vocal track and he had, you know, it looked like a kind of industrial saw. You know, there's probably 50 cuts and boosts Oof. on two or three EQ plugins. And I went, <laughs> wow, okay, can you take everything off, please? <laughs> and he took everything off. And the artist who was sitting beside me was literally in tears. It sounded so good with no processing at all. You know, and this guy had just systematically messed yep. it up. Yep. <laughs> that's just, it's an amateur mistake. But I yeah. think, again, that's a kind of, I feel a kind of UTV mistake, you know, hey, there's magic EQ things for people. Oh, well, let's put some of that magic EQ. Well, open your darn ears. Yeah. And if something, you EQ something and it doesn't sound good, don't just add more EQ, you know, take it off <laughs> and, and try again. Yeah. You know, but I think that's the sort of thing that Alan teaches in the course mm-hmm. and I think is really valuable information, which we sort of tend to forget these days. <laughs> anyway. No, that's, that's my story. That's great. My and uh, that goes into talking about mentorship. My audio mentor, Mr. Dave Isaac, who I was one of my instructors at Musicians Institute, he taught me that balance was key. And just because you have all of the compressors and all of the EQs available to you, that doesn't mean you have to use a single one of them. He said sometimes you can get away with using just filters or nothing at all if it was recorded properly. So that's a that's a really really good point. And that got me thinking. 
Alan, did you have mentors? I'm sure you've mentored a lot of people over the years, but over the course of your career, were there people that you looked up to? And and I suppose it was probably more of your peers, but is there importance to that? And I think we were just speaking to that of of the experience of being around other people to learn. Absolutely. I mean, uh, r- right from the beginning, I mean, uh, I mean, it's a well-known fact that uh, Abbey Road engineers, almost every one of them either was great at what, what they did, remaining on the staff at, at Abbey Road Studios, but uh, I mean, so many uh, great uh, engineers went on to do great things outside Abbey Road. And Jeff Emmerich was one of them, uh, Ken Scott. Oh, yeah. I admired uh, Peter Vincent enormously. He, he didn't particularly get to be that well known, but he was a fantastic engineer. It was just, you know, every experience, every experience as, that I had as a as an assistant, you know, second engineer, tape up, whatever you want to call it. You just, you know, watch and learn and uh, you listen to the results and uh, they become a part of you. you know, it's it's, uh, it's quite magical, actually, and, and how, how important uh, just asking questions and learning from the best people. So, yeah, I mean, mentorship was, yeah, part of my upbringing. Before we wrap it up here, I just have to say your complete box set of the Alan Parsons Project is available on vinyl now. Um, It's everything that you ever did. And of course, your course that we've been talking about, ASSR, or the Art and Science of Sound Recording, is available now at artandscienceofsound.com. Is there anything either of you would like to bring up before we wrap up this interview? Um, Perhaps just the, the latest studio album, which is called From the New World. That's out there. Came out uh, oh six months ago, and uh, we're doing a live cruise. Uh, it's called On the Blue Cruise. That's coming up in January. I've had some uh, some health problems that have kept me uh, from doing a, a whole lot of live shows, but uh, the, the cruise is, is definitely on the calendar, and I'll be doing that. And um, who knows? I mean, I, I, I'm uh, I'm not sure what what will be happening in the summer, but we'll see. And uh, yeah, but there's lots of lots of product out there. You know, the box set, the studio album, and uh, and uh, two live albums as well. So look out for those. If I may be boldly uh, uh, self-centered and say that this stuff is all at alanparsons.com if you care to go there. Thank you. No, of course you can. You can be as bold as you'd like to be because you are Alan Parsons. So everybody, please go to alanparsons.com. Check out the studio album from The New World. And of course, check out On the Blue Cruise coming up in January. Mr. Parsons, Alan, I'm sorry, and Julian, thank you both so much for your time today. I truly appreciate it. And it's been an absolute honor having you here on the podcast. Thank you so much. You're very welcome. Thank you. Very fun. Thank you.